Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Playing Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Emily Arthur. She's of Eastern Band Cherokee descent and is the Associate Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and serves as the Chair of the Printmaking Area within the Art Department, where they will be hosting the SGCI, the Southern Graphics Council Conference, in March 16th through the 19th in 2022, titled Our Shared Future. Arthur received an MFA from Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in Philadelphia and has served as a fellow at the Barnes Foundation for Advanced Theoretical Critical Research. Additional education includes the Rhode Island School of Design, University of Georgia, and the Tamarine Institute of Lithography at the University of New Mexico. Arthur's awards, the grants that she's received, the, her work that is in collections around the country, the books that she's featured in is most impressive and would take half this episode to read. And so I would invite you to read her her biography in the show notes. It is most impressive and uh, worth taking your time. She has been featured in exhibitions and collections around the world, uh, including Russia, Estonia, Iceland, France, the UK, etc. And so uh, completely impressive. But I think what makes Emily most interesting uh, in the context of this podcast is her connectability. Um, she is someone that has put the time and thoughtfulness into the work that she does. And if you ever have the, the opportunity and the luck to be able to stand in front of her work, you will see that and you'll be able to connect with that. So with that said, let's jump into the interview with Emily Arthur. Emily, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plain Questions. It's a pleasure having you here today. Joe, thank you so much. And thank you for all the work that you're doing, capturing these stories. And um, I just really appreciate being able to listen to other people's stories. And I hope that there might be something today that I can share that'll help someone else, even if it's just like one thing or one word. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your backgrounds, and where you're from? Sure. So, so yeah. So, I mean, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and grew up in pretty much the southeast. And uh, because of my dad's job, he sold um, aluminum, recycled aluminum. We moved all the time. We moved quite a lot. So, um uh, we lived six places before I was in the fourth grade. Um, so that was uh, moving from Atlanta up to the rural mountains of North Carolina, which is where my family is from. Um, my dad is descendant of Eastern Band Cherokee, which has been a huge part of understanding my own story and sort of where I fit in this world. Um, we also lived in Asheville, Savannah, Bradenton, Florida, and ended up in Jacksonville, Florida, where I went to high school. But in all of that, you know, crazy moving around as a kid, it just means having to explain yourself all the time. And um, I just really went deep into drawing and, and, and sort of being in my own world of, um, as we were talking about earlier, just being an introvert, um, I think as, you know, part of a, a survival technique. 
Um, but it also meant that all this moving around, I ended up staying with my grandmothers a lot. You know, they'd sort of dump you off and be like, we'll come back and get you later after we move or after we get settled or whenever school starts. So um, I really clinged on to those stable things like my grandparents and um, being in their homes and their their rhythms, you know, of cooking and eating and being together, which was way more stable than sort of my home situation. Thinking about um, all those moves and, and uh, your response to, to that, um, that feels like a similar vein um, in a sense as, as maybe why a lot of us start drawing early and sort of uh, drawing back into ourselves. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, thinking about it now, of course, as a kid, you're just in it, you know, you're just sort of clinging to these terrible coloring books as a kid, that was like my whole world, you know, that, that black outline on that cheap newsprint, and just having those crayons and just on the floor all the time. I mean, I think that was the way to navigate what all the adults were doing. And um, even into school, like, really, you know, as a young kid, I remember being Um, lots of different public elementary schools and the teachers were great. I mean, they just were like, oh, you're the new kid and would stick you in the corner to draw. That was, that was awesome. I did not want to go to PE outside. Like, please don't put me in a group of kids. (laughs) Like I just, so yeah, I think um, maybe survival in the beginning, but then later it is a real healing place. You know, your, your sketchbook or your drawing. Who, are your biggest influences? Gosh, so yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it was getting these questions, it, it like sends you in all these different directions because, um, you know, still today thinking about uh, my great grandmother, Mudo, and those foundational times with her um, and my grandfather who lived in North Carolina, so I got to be there all the time. Um, but as you know, as we are required to do, which is to have some discipline or job or skill set, um, I just was really lost. I mean, I had no idea that women could be artists or that artists was a career or anything like that. So um, when I got to school and, um, you know, thinking about college at this point, um, it was mostly men, you know, who were painters. And that that was like the thing. So um, I I had a really um, special time to work for Lamar Dodd, who was a, a painter at University of Georgia. And he was a faculty emeritus at the time. He had already retired and um, was really this paternal kind of role model saying like, you can do this, you know, like you can, you can make art, like it's a, it's a thing. Um, but I, I still didn't really believe it. And um, through that, that uh, internship, and it was actually several years that I worked for him in his home with Lamar. Through him, I met a visiting artist, Mel Chin, who was at the University of Georgia in, it was like 93 or four or something like that. And he was a visiting artist. And um, looking at Mel Chin's just drive to bring a social practice into art making was something I had never seen before. I felt, I mean, I am so fortunate to have been able to see that um, kind of firsthand. He was working on a huge collaborative uh, project with, which included students. And, um, and I still am 
in touch with him today. I, I just was in North Carolina making selections of his works on paper for a show next year. So that was really, really special. Um, but it wasn't until after college and really when I was um, an adjunct faculty member that I met uh, women artists, native artists, printmakers. I mean, this was this changed my whole understanding of what was possible. And um, so I would say that those those influences, I mean, first of all, was Melanie Yazzie, who I met because we were both at Tamron Institute trying to learn how to make aluminum plate lithos, which was hilarious. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, when I, I remember meeting, you know, Melanie, and I was like, what do you mean you have a gallery and you're an artist? Like, what? Like, what is that? And she's like, oh, just Google me. And I thought, what? Like, I was so <laughs> impressive, you know? So of course I go to the, uh, you know, the the monitor and the library and just you know it, it was so special to see um and be with her at a time where she basically offered this this model of of something i had never seen before and i remember her telling me about these things called an exchange print portfolio and um i don't i don't know if that's something joe that you're familiar with in the printmaking world is that anything that you've not specifically so it's it's kind of unique to printmaking because you know we make multiples and and you know so so yazi said that she really just wanted to get out of where she was and so she was organizing these printmaking folios so that people would from all over the world would, would be able to access her work and see her work. And I just, I was so impressed by her kind of building that up. But anyway, so when I learned about print portfolios, so, so um, you can, you have these multiples and she, she, in this case, Yazi would invite artists into the folio. So you'd be mailing her like 20 prints and then you'd get back 20 different prints of of different artists. And so that was Mm. an incredible just moment of opening up this, you know, physical mail, this physical box, and then having this intimate experience with individual prints and looking at how the artist made it, what their paper selection was, how the ink smelled. And um, it would often have the artist biography. And so instantly you would have these, you know, 19 other people that you now had an image with and a biography with and it connect their email was on there. I mean, this was like shocking right at the time that, oh. you know, this is before all of the, the, the kind of Instagram and stuff that we have now. So that was a, mm. um, Melanie, you know, is and was a huge influence on, on those kind of initial steps into what it meant to share work with other people and to be really conscious about the content of the work. Um, so, yeah, so so through that kind of printmaking world, I met Marwin and John and then uh, Nancy Marie Mythelo, who um, we still are working on projects today, which is so grateful for that. Um, also, Juanita Pataponi, who um, passed away at the beginning of COVID, but she was a huge mentor for me in this sort of knowing how to share your story or talk about the work. Um, and the responsibility of our stories, the responsibility of the history of what 
our families have been through and um, that, you know, led to a relationship with Shan Gosshorn, who also has passed away recently. And um, Shan and I were able to do some archival research at uh, Carlisle Indian School together, looking at the student biographies and the history of the Cherokee students there. Um, and uh, th- those have just been foundation, foundational relationships, I would say. Um, recently, Jean Quictesy has sent some really supportive emails, and it's like, I just want to cry when I read her beautiful descriptions of mm-hmm. where what she's doing and memories that she has. Um, I-, I recently had a chance to go to um, Crow Shadow you know, Arts Institute. So she sent me this amazing email about the land there and, you know, kind of say hey to these people for me. And it was just really special to um, feel that support. You know, I, I feel like there's people who influence us, of course, you know, that make you feel seen, you know, make you feel like what what you're what you have to say is is worth saying, perhaps, you know. Um, and then we can totally be influenced by places. I mean, I I I am well aware that, um, you know, pretty much every image I make is based on the place from where I come. You know, I've gone back to the same place in North Carolina that that I grew up and I look at this line of trees on the edge of this field and I think I've been looking at the whole world through this line of trees my whole life. And it's almost like, the things that feel like home are closer to that image, you know, as if these are the, this is the lens that I'm looking at the whole world through is this place, this location and, um, and this land. And so I know that, um, you know, making work, the materials that I'm choosing, whether it's like actual soil from a a location or water or paper or documents or ephemera, or, I mean, these all have this like physical tie to a place and to, you know, to who we are. Um, and uh, so I think as far as influences, um, you know, I, I cannot escape that. I cannot escape that that place in North Carolina. You know, I just can't. <laughs> How have you developed your career, both uh, college and post-college? Gosh, so I don't even think I knew I was putting a career together. I mean, I think, you know, you're just sort of going by the seat of your pants and, um, tying things together that seem unrelated. Um, when you look back, of course, you have this long CV and, um, you know, I've ended up cutting things out of it, like all the temp work and office work and, oh my gosh, apprenticing to make dentures at some point, like, you know, you just piece things together. Um, and I don't think that we necessarily see that, um, like when you're all dressed up and walking into a museum or a artist talk or the classroom even because you have this like armor on, but um, none of this was guaranteed. All of this was just sort of, you know, sewn together as, as, as we go along and um, definitely not like a linear path, like one way. Um, I, uh, I can say that I've been incredibly fortunate to be, teaching and um I adjunct taught for seven years um it was like a couple classes then super adjunct then instructor um you know and then the opportunity to start applying for for more permanent teaching positions um but I I I always 
was trying to think about, you know, was it going to be possible for me to have a job to support myself and then I could make the work? I, I really just didn't even know it was possible to to only make work, you know, to make work as an artist. Like I just, I really didn't consider that for myself. Um, and I do think that it's been a huge privilege to have this, you know, this research-based art-making career um, alongside alongside the teaching. Um, only because I just didn't, I didn't have that um, kind of introduced early on, like that that was something I could do. I wasn't even sure I, I was gonna survive, you know, kind of every time I'd have a birthday, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I lived to this, this age. <laughs> like, I didn't think I was going to make it this far. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I think, um, I think the career is like a really big word for just um, saying yes to a lot of things that may lead to nothing and may lead to something. So that brings us to the next question then is um, the, the general question is how do you seek opportunities? But um, how have they presented themselves, um, or I guess as you've moved through your career, um, have have they evolved evolved in different ways? I I think that just being in the make, you know, like if I mean, I I definitely can say that I have this compulsion to make, um, and so in the making, in this kind of apprenticing to the materials or to the process. Um, at least in printmaking, the you, you meet these other printmakers who are also, you know, working alongside you making things, and um, that leads to opportunities like, oh, there's this exhibition, or oh, will you come give this demo, or um, there's going to be a group show, or you know, eventually this idea of a solo show, um, and um, just saying yes to all those things. Um, until you can say no, right? I mean, until you come into the point of your your practice where you must say no. And um, that the whole idea of no as a really powerful cutting tool to determine what must go and what can stay so that at, at, at some point, at least at this point, I have to be really careful about what what stays, you know, what to say yes to, what to devote my time to. There's not that much time left. I mean, it, I mean, once you start laying out the things you want to make and the projects and the history and the, the, these, these narratives that must be told, there, there's not that much time left. I mean, there's sort of this impulse of watching it go so quickly. Um, but early on, you know, without expectation, um, you know, really just, just apprenticing yourself to either another artist or a process or a material um, will carry you to the next opportunity. Um, I, I've never been one to get on these mailing lists and, and you know, there's, all we there's entire websites around um, exhibitions and, and awards and things like that. And I just felt like if I could go internal more, like if I could go further into the studio practice and further into making a more complicated print, you know, let's, let's, instead of three colors, let's go to six colors with a sheen collet, with hand tinting, with, you know, found ephemera. How, how can I make this work more complicated, not like more complicated sets of applications and emails? <laughs> can, can I ask you an additional question? Oh, please do. Yeah. Uh, um, 
about school, a college uh, per se. Okay. Um, can you can you talk about uh, the process of um, of maybe uh, applying to school or your path in college? Uh, was art always the the direct path into college for you from the beginning? Gosh, um, I think it felt like a real uh, crapshoot. You know, I I feel like now schools and you know, students have so much more um, content that they can look into, like these videos they have for schools, or um, I think they even have like these universal applications right now. So you're not having to, you know, you can just fill out one application and that goes to all of the schools, like in some database. But um, Mm. in, in my experience, I really only considered local schools, like the state schools, because that's just what, what was familiar. Um, and you had to get on the phone, like the phone attached to the wall and call a human to ask the person at that school to mail you an application, you know, things like that. And so for each school, you'd have to like, so I mean, that just wasn't an option for for me. So it was sort of like whatever the local kind of state options were. And, um, so, uh, so my, my dad went to college, but my mom didn't. And so he, he went to the university of Georgia and that was just kind of was going to be where I was going to go. Um, and it is where I went to school. Um, there was this moment where, there was an art teacher who stepped in and said, you should apply to art school. And I did. And I ended up getting in and I went to art school for that first year and I did not know what to do. I mean, I was so unprepared for the level of sophistication and money and um, like support that, that the students had. And they were like, I'm going to, this is my career. I'm going to, you know, be a designer and I'll be like what how like what so I I had kind of a circuit is that the word I had like a a route that wasn't you know I left I mean I left art school then then went to the University of Georgia and then was lucky enough to fall in with these really um, foundational artists who said you know get get kind of get back to it you know it's okay you know that they they kind of saw something in me that was like you it's okay just try it again (laughs) you know I had given up on myself um, and then that, and then through those mentors, they were like, well, consider grad school. And, um, and, and I, 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 I did not do well my first year of grad school. And they, they're like, no, don't, don't come back. Like, we don't really know what to do with you. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, all of these things were like, I'm really mean by the seat of my pants. Like, it, it's like, I, 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 I wasn't sure how to navigate this, this world because I felt like other people were so much more prepared, like that they had cliff notes or they had short notes or they had somebody's phone number that I just didn't have. Um, so, so I, I, I did go, I did go back on a probational, um, you know, time in grad school and I did finish grad school. And by the end of grad school, I, um, I was in a much better place and, a huge part of that has to do with um, just coming to terms with my own kind of personal family story, which had to do with incredible amounts of alcoholism and some uh, really rowdy, abusive situations that um, 
left me with no skills when I got out of that system. It's like you're kind of held hostage in this world that's a house of cards. And as soon as you get out of that system, nothing makes sense. So I had to kind of relearn what it meant to um, not doubt every single thing that that was offered to me, you know, to distrust and um, question each opportunity that came forward. So um, at some point in grad school, I was able to start really looking at what I now understand as intergenerational trauma from these these histories of removal, of dislocation, of um, the Cherokee women in my family having to survive in the South to pass as white, to um, to not have the um, connection um, either through you know military efforts at um, cultural genocide or re-education. I mean, these are very real practices that affect us today. Now they are not in the past, and so it was in graduate school that that somehow these things started to come together, and it was through the recognition of addiction and um, and violence in my own family that that it kind of broke through. Like that, this was what I needed to look at. So what would you like to say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? Um, I, I think that uh, I, I wish I had known that it was just going to be okay. You know, that, that things that I thought I was doing badly, that were bad things were going to turn out to be good things. You know, that these huge mistakes I thought I was making or having a change of plans or doing things differently, that it was, it was going to be okay, that there wasn't some singular route to, you know, some linear method that this whole thing is organic and changing and evolving. Um, but I, I really didn't think I was going to make it like I didn't make it like survive it. Like I've, I thought that I, I, that these would kill me, these mistakes that I wouldn't, um, make it through, but I, I actually lived into these mistakes and they, they that's okay. Um, uh, I, um, I, I was estranged from my family for 15 years. And in that time I was, was wondering why, and I was almost like obsessed with the why this was happening. And when I started to ask what was happening instead of why this was happening, it was a really powerful change of, of the question and change of perception. So, um, you know, this, this idea of being lost or being abandoned is changed when you think about being abandoned to the world. Like, you know, anything is possible. You're not locked into some story um, or something that some kind of failed event or some failure. And, and to just be totally free of, of that was um, shocking to me, you know, that I didn't owe anything to anyone anymore if I was completely abandoned and abandoned to the world. Um, and so then I could really focus on what was happening. What are the materials I'm using? What are the opportunities in front of me? Um, you know, what is this glue doing? What is this ink doing? You know, what, what are the materials I'm collecting? What's the meaning of the materials I'm collecting? And then that, that, that that question of the materials informed the content. It was like I got to the why 
by looking at the what, you know, like just observing and learning what I was doing and what was happening and, and how I moved in the studio. You know, I learned that I'm a binge maker. Uh, I will go into the studio for weeks at a time. No, you know, nothing else like that is everything else has to be shut down versus other people who are in their nine to five making coffee, like having snacks. I'm like, what, what is that? Like every day, you know, that, that, that kind of, schedule just didn't fit the sort of binge making. Um, and I think that that's helpful to know for young artists is that um, just observe yourself, you know, just to be an apprentice to your own practice, your own materials and what you're doing. And the, the why of it is going to come. The, the, the content will reveal itself. You don't have to know before you walk into the studio um, you're just compelled to make. We're in this compelled, you know, desire to make and um, that, that that can become the thing you're chasing. You're not chasing yourself. You're trying to get something down. You know, you're getting it down on paper. You're not dreaming it up. And, and, and I think there's a real freedom in that, um, that uh, it really isn't about the artist. It's about the work and the responsibility to make that work. And then you know, the other fears can just sort of fall away. Well, thank you. Um, that was, that was wonderful. Really was. Thanks. Thank and you. thanks again for um, looking at the rewriting catalog. Cause that was a great project. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I learned so much in that and, and had such foundational relationships come out of it. And um, anyway, I just appreciate you looking at that. Absolutely. Is, is that available somewhere? It's uh, what, what is the yeah. story behind that? If I can ask that real oh, quick. Oh yeah. The rewriting history project. Um, mm -hmm. So when I was teaching in Florida, the, there was a small town um, called St. Augustine and it's, it considers itself like the first, the nation's first city, 450 years old or something like this. And the state was putting millions of dollars into this 450th celebration but they had eliminated any indigenous perspective. There was no native history being told about the city. And um, not only is it the, um, you know, the place and the land of the Seminole nation, but the earlier Tamuquan people, um, the city itself has a central Spanish fort that was used as a prison for the first 72 Comanche, Kiowa, um, these, these plains, prisoners that were taken by train through across the United States and paraded as prisoners um, and then held in, in St. Augustine where Lieutenant Pratt uh, coined the phrase, save the man, kill the Indian, save the man. And that became his like rehabilitation method to, that he used to start the um, boarding schools for Indian children. So the significance of that place cannot be understated because it came the primary method of um, educational genocide for, you know, through the 1930s with Carlisle Indian School being the kind of more, most well-known school. But, you know, 10,000 children came through just Carlisle. Um, so in St. Augustine, Pratt began that um, with these first 72 men. And then 10 years later, in the same location at Fort Marion, there were over 500 Chiricahua Apache men, women, and children held there. So, so my teaching um, was 
you know, trying to bring, trying to sneak this reality, this true history into the classroom. Like we were, you know what I mean? Like I wanted, you know, that's kind of what education has to be sometimes. And the, the city of St. Augustine would not permit it. We were not, I was actually told that I could not hold this exhibition or this, this project um, by one of the city, um, representatives. And what happened instead was that a private college, Flagler College gallery, the gallery director um, said, well, it's an art project and we can, we can have an art exhibition of contemporary native perspectives on this history. And that kind of got around the, the city pushback of we won't fund this. And so it was an amazing, um, you know, for, on a lot of levels, one, because art was being used as a, as a way to tell a true history, a true indigenous history that had been held intact in native communities, but was completely unknown to the St. Augustine community. I had students who'd, you know, been born there and had no idea this had happened in St. Augustine. Um, and then the other kind of amazing thing was that artists who were descendants of this history, direct descendants of this history, who had family members um, in Fort Marion, um, we're, we're making work about it. So Edgar Heepa Birds, uh, Harry Mythalo, who spoke about his uncle being born a prisoner of war in St. Augustine. And of course, these are Geronimo's people. So Geronimo wasn't even held there because they were, he was so famous and beloved, they were certain he would be, um, you know, that someone would let him out. And so he was taken further down into Fort Pickens. But this really... Um, you know, foundational history that is not present when you go to St. Augustine to this day. You, you, you'll see um, Spanish conquistadors firing muskets and Columbus and French stuff, you know, but you won't get that history. So anyway, so that was rewriting. <laughs> that was the rewriting history project, and um, and John and Marwin and Nancy Mythalo and Juanita Pataponi. It became this real um, shared uh, effort that um, was a, a really a ten year long project, um, and uh, it resulted in multiple exhibitions that traveled um, to different um, community centers and museums, and um, it started the first exhibition in St. Augustine, just a few blocks from the prison. And then the closing exhibition was at Carlisle Indian School at the um, Dickinson College Trout Museum Gallery during um, the sort of annual uh, boarding school. Um, there's a like a conference of remembering the Carlisle Indian Boarding School there. So, um, so it was kind of a amazing beginning and ending. And um, and Shan uh, Goshorn had a solo exhibition there at the same time that we had our our closing um, show of rewriting history. So the the catalog ha, ha, has a, a record of the seventy two artists that were part of it, and a beautiful essay by Nancy Mythalo. And um, it, it's just something I'm um, I'm grateful that that I was able to contribute to. It's a it's a, it was a beautiful catalog. Uh, I wish I would have seen the exhibition. Um, and it, I think it's, it's so important to be able to, to tell the truth in something like this. Um, because I know in South Dakota, it is happening right now. Um, the, the state of South Dakota 
has completely uh, wiped out new efforts by a joint group of educators to include Native American curriculum into the educational system in South Dakota. And that was wiped out by Governor Nome and her administration. And I think that's a complete disservice, not just to the, the indigenous and Native American people of South Dakota, but to South Dakotians in general, because they don't know their own history. They have an assumption and they've been told a lot of wrong things, and I, I can speak from experience. But I think um, I think something like this is amazing, and this this needs to efforts like this need to continue to right these wrongs and tell the truth. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for for being here. This was really really fun. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, so much. And um, again, like I I hope there's just you know even one thing that might help someone you know make it to the next question or or their next opportunity um and it doesn't have to be something really big you know it can it can just be lots of small things that get sewn together you know as a long list of, of um, you know small efforts and, and that becomes one one continuous effort you know And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Emily again for her time and sharing her story with us. I had first really had come to be aware of Emily uh, through an exhibition through the Plains uh, called Wasmo Bashizi, which was a collection, it was an exhibition of about 25 Native American female artists uh, that um, was at the Plains Art Museum back in 2019. And through that, I really studied her, her work that we had within the exhibition and became fascinated with the imagery and the idea of transition and movement uh, from place and time. And after speaking with her today, I finally have a better insight on what she was talking about. Of course, when I'd seen her work, I internalized what she was, what she was putting out there through my own lens. And as she spoke today, I kind of did the same thing too. And so uh, I, I know she, um, in speaking today, she wanted to inspire you, the listener. Uh, but I share that with you. Uh, I, I've connected into something and tapped into something within myself through this conversation uh, from something that she said. And so, Emily, for that, thank you so much. Um, it's, this was great and I really look forward to the next time we can connect hopefully it'll be March of 2022 um, in Wisconsin at the Southern Graphics Council Conference uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community so please join us again next week as we speak with another incredible person I'm Joe Williams you can find me on Kana that's C-A-N-A-A creativity among Native American artists on Facebook Instagram, Twitter, across social media, and at the plainsart.org website. There you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. And if you have a suggestion for someone for me to talk to, please reach out to me on Facebook and message me. It would be great to hear from you. Well, with that, take care, and we will see you next week. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.